Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. In this edition, it's part two of my exclusive interview with film director William Friedkin, the guy behind French Connection, The Exorcist, Sorcerer and Cruising, which is just coming out on Arrow Blu-ray with a special commentary by me and Billy. If you've missed the first half of this conversation, don't worry, you can go back and download it now. All previous episodes of Kermode on Film are available to download at any time. But now sit back, relax, and enjoy the second half of my exclusive conversation with the brilliant William Friedkin. We've talked about you and uh, police, and the the equation is always police and priests, and you've made films uh, about priests and religion. Most recently, you made this documentary, The Devil and Father Remort, which is still playing on, on Netflix and drawing a worldwide audience. Can you describe uh, what that documentary was was about? What was the inception of it? Well, I was in a little town in Italy called Lucca, yeah, <clears throat> which is near the town of Pisa, where the Leaning Tower yeah. is. And Lucca is the home of uh, Giacomo Puccini, and I was receiving the Puccini Prize for a lot of the operas that I had directed of his. And I was there for eight days, and it's a beautiful little town. But I thought, I I don't have to be here for eight days. Um, uh, Maybe I'll see a friend of mine who lives in Rome one of those days. And on a whim, I wrote to a friend of mine who is now the editor of L'Osservatore Romano, which is the Vatican newspaper. Right. His name is Andrea Manda. And I sent him an email saying, do you think I could meet with Father Amort, who was the Vatican exorcist for 30 years? Mm-hmm. And word came back in two days that Father Amort would be delighted to meet with me. Uh, he loved The Exorcist. He wrote about it in his first book. He said that while the special effects were over the top, the movie did help people to understand his work. So he agreed to see me, and I took a day out of my time in Lucca, drove to Pisa, where there was a one-hour flight to Rome. And I went into Rome for the morning, and I met with Father Amort had a nice, long conversation with him. Yeah. And then I we went back to California, and I went to Graydon Carter's Academy Award party. He was the editor of Vanity Fair. Yeah. 
And Graydon and I were standing on the deck during a commercial break, and he said, so what operas do you have coming up and this and that? And he said, where, where have you been lately? And I told him I had just come from Rome where I met the Vatican exorcist. He said, what? <laughs> you did what? <laughs> and he said, you have to write about that for Vanity Fair. Yeah. He said, write an article. I'll give you all the space you want in Vanity Fair. And it turned out to be one of the longest articles they've ever printed. It was mm -hmm. 6,500 words. I went back to Rome and I interviewed Father Amord. And in the course of the, he's the most spiritual man I've ever met. And in the course of the interview, I said to him, Father, you think it would ever be possible for me to witness an exorcism, which is ridiculous because it's not a show. And he said, well, let me think about that. A couple of days later, I got a message from the head of his order saying, yes, this was 2017, I think. Father Amort is doing an exorcism uh, on May 1st, and you're invited to come and see it. I went to Rome a day or two early, mm -hmm. and I said uh, to the head of the order, the Pauline priests, and to Father Amort, would you let me film it? I had a little yeah. Sony still camera that shot high-definition video as well. <clears throat> and the head of the order said, no way, we would never get permission. <laughs> this is not an entertainment event. No, we're not going to give permission for you to film it. And Father Amort said, let him do it. It's like that. And he... He got whatever he wanted in the Vatican. All of the popes throughout his lifetime of service admired and respected him and, and bowed to him. Mm -hmm. And he, he didn't seek permission from the pope, which if you had, you wouldn't get it. Yeah, It's not something to be photographed. And he said, let him do it. I don't know why. He he liked me. I liked him. Yeah, you seem to get on. I mean, there is, there's great affection in the footage of you and him together. Oh, I just love this guy. He was a, an amazing man. And so I filmed an exorcism. It was the ninth exorcism of a woman in her 40s. It was not successful, but it had some harrowing moments. Mm -hmm. Now... I don't know, was this demonic possession or not? Maybe it was a disease that for which we have no name now, but maybe we will have another name for it later. But he had successfully treated yeah. thousands of people. And you then took the footage of the exorcism to people who were specialists in uh, neurosurgery yeah. and the brain. And you brain showed it to surgery. them and you said, what do you think this is? And yeah. what was astonishing was that many of them said, oh, well, we get, we call this possession. Yeah. It's, a, it's a state that we refer to as possession. 
Yes, and they had no medicine for it. There's nothing in general medicine. It it's, wasn't epilepsy. It wasn't anything that could be cured by a normal medical procedure. You also did a very interesting interview with a somebody fairly high up in the priesthood. He was the Bishop of Los Angeles. Who said that he did not feel that he would be capable of doing an exorcism because he 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 talked about doubts that I that I was surprised to hear somebody in his position speak so honestly about Bishop Robert Barron of Los Angeles yeah who has done a lot of television films on Christianity and stuff brilliant man and he said he didn't think his faith was at that level that he could do battle with the devil and were you surprised by that? I was shocked. I said, but you're a bishop. I said, you're one of the highest officers of the church. He said, I know, but somebody like Father Amord is, is very rare. Someone who has that sort of level of faith. He said, I don't have that. At the time I directed the film, The Exorcist, I had never seen the real thing. But on May 1st, 2016, Father Gabriela Amort, the Vatican exorcist, invited me to witness an actual exorcism. I had no idea what to expect. The more you open yourself to thinking about this stuff, and you start feeling about this stuff, the more room you allow for the supernatural power of evil to come in. If we don't understand it, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. There's a dimension to this world that is strange and beyond our capacity to control. Can I know how to treat it? No. So something is happening to her, it's clear. But maybe she puts into it the religious context in which she grew up. Because they believe, obviously, they know what's wrong with her. She's possessed by the devil. I think that's a very dangerous thing, getting in close quarters with the devil. People like Father Amorth maybe can do that. I would never dare to do it. This is not fiction. It's different from all the movies. And I was there to film it. I sort of was peripherally involved in, in the documentary when you were doing some writing. And one of the things that you and I talked about was the fact that the case upon which William Peter Blatty's novel of The Exorcist had been inspired by, the 1949 Mount Rainier case, did not hold up to scrutiny. Bill had always thought it doesn't. That it, yeah. It doesn't hold up. It doesn't mean that it didn't happen, but the reporting on it was so over the top. Because there was a Washington Post story that actually then ended up being taken off their website, wasn't it? It was yeah. the original story that he had read. And... 1949. 1949. And did that... So having... And it happened in a place called Cottage City, Maryland, not Mount Rainier, which yeah. is what the paper reported. Yes. Possibly to throw people off. They didn't, they didn't want to reveal the name of the family. or yeah. the, It was about a 14-year-old boy. Yeah, and the guy then grew up and ended up working for NASA mm -hmm. and became he – he had a couple of patents that he invented. He had a very yeah. successful career. Yeah. 
And you never had any contact with him? No, he wouldn't talk to anybody. For sure. So did you, I know that you said that when you were making The Exorcist, you know, you wanted to look at it as a kind of, you know, it's a film about the mystery of faith and for all its, you know, special effects and everything, you were always kind of interested in that ambiguity. Where are you now on that area of demonic possession, spirits, whatever? I believe there's good and evil in every one of us to one degree or another, everything from road rage to murder. And sometimes people are capable of murder that you would never expect could do that. So I do believe that there is good and evil in everyone, and it's a constant struggle for our better angels to survive and thrive. Father Amort said that the devil, of course, was spirit, not flesh. There's no little red figure with a yeah. tail and horns and a pitchfork. But he said he had had conversations with the devil as part of the devil's possession of someone, but that the devil is spirit. Now, one of the things I become convinced of as I get older... How old are you, Billy? 83. And one of the things I'm convinced of is that no one knows anything about the great mysteries of life. Not the smartest men who ever lived don't know whether there was a heaven, a hell, what we're doing here, how we got here. It, it, it's like love. It can't be explained. It just happens to you. And while I, I am not a Catholic, I strongly believe in the teachings of Jesus. But what the church will tell you is you must believe in the resurrection mm -hmm. or the entire thing is a fraud. If Jesus did not die on the cross and then go to join his Father in heaven and then come back to earth, then the religion has no weight. But I don't feel that way. I, I think that Jesus was a great teacher and healer based just on the historical writings about Jesus. Yeah. Uh, and it's enough for me. Uh, I can't tell you whether the supernatural aspect of it exists or not. It's part of the mystery of faith. Hello, Reagan. I'm a friend of your mother's. I'd like to help you. You want to loosen the straps, huh? I'm afraid you might hurt yourself, Reagan. I'm not Reagan. I see. Well, then, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. If you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? That's much too vulgar display of power, Karras. Bill Blatty said to me that the inspiration he thought after years looking back on it for The Exorcist was 
a terror at the obliteration of death. He said that the loss of his mother had struck him very, very profoundly. And what he loved about the idea of demonic possession was that it meant that there was something else. It meant that, you know, if there are demons, there are angels, it's it, it's an afterlife. You have, a, you have a very different approach to it, which is that you're not looking for proof of the supernatural. You're there just, is no proof. No. It's, it's a mystery. You have the faith or you don't. Do you fear death? Of course. Uh... You know, as I get closer to the final act, I'm not looking forward to it. Certainly not. Um, Do you imagine that there's an afterlife? I have no idea, Mark. You know, the, the greatest minds of all time don't know because nobody has ever been there and come back to tell us unless you are willing to accept what Jesus said. You did have a near-death experience. Yes, I was dead for, I don't remember how long. You were driving to work and you had a heart attack. On the freeway. And you carried on driving while having a heart attack. For about 15 or 20 minutes. Which is very you. You got into the parking lot and you collapsed. I went into the infirmary, which was at the entrance to Warner Brothers. Okay, and you collapsed and then you were on the table... And at one point, they thought... When I collapsed, I had these five guys run toward me who worked in the infirmary. And they tried to revive me. And I remember one of them was pumping my chest and the other was grabbing an oxygen mask. And I remember hearing the guy who was pumping my chest say to the others... I'm not getting anything. And when you when you lose your senses, you lose if you die slowly, you lose them one by one. Right. And the last sense you lose is the sense of hearing. And um So did you think I'm dying? Yes. I remember thinking, "Oh my god, I'm I'm dying." I was in my 40s, and I thought, my God, I'm dying, and I've done nothing with my life. <laughs> I've accomplished nothing. And I was moving as though on an escalator, not walking, okay. but like gliding yeah. toward a distant white light. And I distinctly heard a woman's voice say to me, it's all right. It doesn't matter. Do you, do you, do you think that And then that, I blacked out. Okay. Do you think that that voice, what do you think it was? It was certainly not of this earth. Okay. So you heard a, a, a disembodied, non-earthly voice saying to you- Woman. Woman's voice saying to you, it's all right. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. Another person, and then I was out. Okay, well, another person would take that as a kind of, you know, Pauline. There we are. You know, it's a. There is something else. Oh sure, I thought there was something else at that time. So what do you think now? That there's something yes. else, but I don't know. Was this an illusion? 
Was this wishful thinking? I, I don't know. It's, I had never died before. <laughs> uh, but then I woke up some time later. Yeah, you were I, out for a while. Yeah, I don't know how long. And I was in an emergency room at St. Joseph Hospital in Burbank. And I was looking up to a very uh, close white light in the hospital. Yeah. And I, I couldn't breathe. I had an oxygen mask, which I kept tearing off because I couldn't breathe with it. And they kept putting it back on, and I thought I was in hell. <laughs> I'm looking at this blazing <laughs> white light and can't breathe. And I thought... This is my fate. You thought that all those people that said, you're going to go to hell for making The Exorcist, it was true. <laughs> Something like that. But, but you know what? I don't have any ultimate conclusions, Mark. I mean, I just, I'm very open-minded about the whole thing. And I don't frown on anyone's faith or belief. Uh, in fact, I, I want to be a believer. I can't accept the church the way it is. Uh, I was raised in the Jewish faith, mm -hmm. but the greatest minds who ever lived have only theories. Well, you, the thing you quoted to me, which you say in the documentary, is you said it's the, it's the Hamlet, it's there are more things in heaven and earth ratio than there are in your philosophy. And you said that's actually what your position on it is, that, that we we don't know, and that's the. We're point. not meant to know, but those who believe are meant to believe. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with believing, but then you you read the work of rationalists like Christopher Hitchens, mm -hmm. actual atheists, who are very convincing in their writings. Yeah, but also weirdly kind of sanctimonious in telling everyone off for believing things that, you know, it's that weird thing about, I have proved that there is no God, so you must stop believing it now, which is kind of just the other side of somebody saying, I have proved that there is a God and you must believe it now. Isn't a, isn't a more open-minded position to say, I don't know. Yes, but you, you know about the role of the devil's advocate? Mm-hmm. Whenever someone is a candidate for sainthood in the Catholic Church, they have people who come forward who bring testimony about miracles that yeah. this person has performed. And then there's the devil's advocate who speaks to the opposite. Yeah. In the case of Mother Teresa, Christopher Hitchens was the devil's advocate. <laughs> he actually came forward and slagged off Mother, Mother Teresa, Teresa. <laughs> and tried to convince the examiners, <laughs> that she was not only not entitled to be considered for sainthood, but was an evil woman. <laughs> so he gave full vent to his non-beliefs. Yeah. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How would you like to disappear? Disappear? Go undercover. You know this man? Who's here? I'm here. You're here. These victims are all the same physical type. What about him, Skip? Late 20s, 140, 150 pounds. Dark hair, dark eyes. Have you ever seen him before? I want to send you out there to see if you can attract this guy. How where? By the time this podcast is going out, uh, the Blu-ray of uh, Cruising uh, will be out. And you and I have just done a director commentary for it. Oh, you've done the commentary. I've just moderated it. Um, I'm fascinated by how how much Cruising still holds together after all this time. I think it's, you know, after The Exorcist, it's the most controversial film that you made. Um, but at the heart of it is, uh, is that same thing, isn't it? That there's good and evil in everyone. It's it's a film populated by characters who have both of those things in them at the same time. That's <clears throat> that's the extent of my beliefs that we have good and evil in all of us. And I remember the first thing I said to Father Amort when I met him. I had a serious question I wanted to ask him, and I did right mm. away. Okay. I said, Father, why is Judas considered an evil character in the New Testament? I mean, the prophecy of Isaiah in the Old Testament said that the Messiah will come to earth, be accused and crucified and resurrected. And Judas was an agent of the prophecy. If he hadn't accused Jesus and taken the 30 pieces of silver, somebody else would have. It was part of the prophecy. And Father Amor said, yes, that's true. He said, but Judas wasn't a very good guy to begin with. You know, he was kind of a thief and a bad guy. So he's come down historically as that. But yes, he was a, in fact, agent of the prophecy. And then, am I right in, in the, whichever it is, ring of, uh, of the Inferno, there is Brutus, Cassius, and Judas at the very sort of, at the very bottom, because that whole idea of betrayal 
is in our in our culture betrayal is it's horrible it's the worst thing right but i i see him as an agent of the prophecy yeah uh if he hadn't done it it would have been one of the other disciples as we get towards the end of our time, can I ask you, what are you doing now? Because you and I have talked about various projects that you had. There's a Killer Joe TV series. Is that happening? No. Uh, that was going to happen? I'm, I'm working now on a series on To Live and Die in L.A. Oh, great. I couldn't properly, as yet, cast Killer Joe. Because Matthew McConaughey, who plays him in the in the film, wasn't didn't want to do it for a TV he series. He didn't want to do it as a series. I don't know. He might change his mind now mm -hmm. uh but it's hard for me to see anyone else so he's key role. to it it has to be well i s see him so yeah. yeah clearly in that role yeah uh and uh there are other roles but that's crucial okay um and i've been doing a lot of writing i just wrote a piece about the great conductor, Carlos Kleiber, for Graydon Carter's new uh, magazine, right. which will be an internet magazine published every week. Do you find yourself more interested in music and, than film now? Well, I'm not that interested in film now. I don't see four or five films a year. Mm -hmm. I have no interest in what's being made. That's the truth. Because? They're not for me. No matter how well done the Avengers may be, I, it's just not for me. It's not in my sphere of interest. Superhero movies with guys in tights flying around with capes. Did you ever get offered any of that? Yeah, well, in the old days, I was offered a bond. Oh, really? Yeah. Which one? By Cubby Broccoli. Huh. I forget which one it was. It was right after the French Connection. Okay. But I spoke to Cubby Broccoli. He called me. So it must be Live and Let Die or Man with a Golden Gun? One of those. I, Whatever. I'm not an expert okay. on their historical sure. positioning. Sure. But he said, look, you don't have to worry about the action he said, we got guys who do all that. Second you, unit. You'll, you'll just direct the principles. And I said, what? I said, <laughs> I'd rather do the second unit. I'd rather do the action scenes. And he said, no, we got guys who do that. I, I said, well, why did you call me? What? <clears throat> because you think I'm so, so great on dialogue or something? I mean, these guys don't say anything in the French Connection. They just grunt and run after some guy with weapons drawn. And so we had a, a very pleasant talk, and I decided I didn't want to do that. And then from t the, the guys who started Marvel Comics are yeah. friends of mine. I wouldn't even think about it. You never got I don't a, want to see one. You never got offered a Star Wars or anything? Oh, no. Because apparently David Lynch got offered Return of the Jedi, which is just the strangest. I mean, it seems that Hollywood projects, the first thing you do is you ask all the A-list directors, even if it's just for them to say no. I've never seen Star Wars. No, okay. 
Actually, I started to watch Phantom Menace, and you no, I started to watch the first one. Okay, because it came out with Sorcerer. Oh, that's right, because the trailer for Sorcerer played before Star Wars at Man's Chinese, or vice versa. Yeah, yeah. The trailer for Star Wars played with, and it just wasn't for me. I mean, here's my list of the great films, yeah. Mark. Okay. Citizen Kane. Yes. All About Eve. Yeah, which you particularly love. You, I love you, it. you once said to me that that was your absolute. You said you were talking about eroticism in cinema, and you said there is nothing more erotic than the things that don't happen in All About Eve. And the great dialogue, the great screenplay. Yeah. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Which, to which you refer many times in your own films. 2001. Yeah. Paths of Glory. The Verdict. Diabolique. Yeah. Uh, by H.G. Clouseau, yeah. Singing in the Rain. Yeah, which I do love. And The Bandwagon. And I don't know how many that is, but those are the ones that immediately come to mind yeah. that I watch over and over again. I must see, for example, The Verdict 12 times a year. I came here to take your money. brought snapshots to show you so I could get your money. I can't do it. I can't take it. Because if I take the money, I'm lost. I'll just be, uh, rich. Ambulance chaser. I continue to appreciate it. It continues to move me like a piece of music. Mm -hmm. Like I can listen to Carlos Kleiber conducting Beethoven's Fifth Symphony each time, and I hear things I've never heard before, only in Kleiber's work. And I am more inspired in my work with actors by Carlos Kleiber mm -hmm. than any filmmaker, because Kleiber who was voted in, I think, 2007 or 11 as the greatest conductor who ever lived by a hundred of his fellow conductors. Kleiber never gave technical instructions. Okay. Now, I've directed around 15 operas, and I've worked with some of the great conductors, Zubin Mehta, and James Conlon, and John Andrea Nozeda, mm -hmm. Kent Nagano, several times, and others. And they all will stop a rehearsal to give technical instructions. Yeah. Uh, play that quarter note a little softer, or uh, faster, or whatever. Yeah. Kleiber spoke only in metaphor, and that's how I worked with actors after I'd seen... When I directed Zalame in Munich at the Bayerische Staatsoper in Munich, I spoke to a lot of the musicians who had worked with Carlos Kleiber, and they told me about the way he worked. And he would say, he'd stop a rehearsal, he'd stop a rehearsal, and he'd say to the violin section, not play faster or softer or mellower, he'd say, Imagine 
there's a beautiful woman sitting here next to me, and you're trying to get her attention. And so you're playing your violin to win her over. And they play it again, and it was completely different and had much greater feeling. Or he would say to the musicians, he'd stop a rehearsal and he would say, do you believe in ghosts? <laughs> and there would be some murmurs from the musicians. Yeah, yes, I guess so. And he'd say, good, sehr good. He'd say, play this introduction as though Ghosts are marching in quietly and slowly. And he would say, and then he'd stop it again and he'd say, just a minute, these are mathematical ghosts. So a little more precision, but still ghostly. <laughs> he was, he spoke only in metaphor. And that's how I've always dealt with actors and with opera singers. Yeah. Um, I I will always find out something about the personal life of an actor I'm working with, and I'll use that simple example was Linda Blair in The Exorcist. I never gave her specific instructions. I I would find out what was the saddest moment in her life, and she told me it was the death of her grandfather, and I would go back to that again and again when I wanted her to appear upset or sad. But I could never explain to her the meaning of some of those words that she had to say. And she only said them because she trusted me, but I made a big game out of it. But I did that with the adults as well. I would take something out of their lives that was either happy or sad, because what, are, what actors are doing is reflecting the emotions of their characters. And I would find something that induced an emotion and present that to them. And that's what Kleiber did. If you listen to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony conducted by Kleiber with the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra... Yeah. Recorded in 1975, you will hear things you've never heard in that symphony before. And almost every one of your listeners has heard either all of it or part of it somewhere. But if you listen to Kleiber and the tempo at which he, and the flair with which he conducts the Fifth Symphony, it's a piece of music you've never heard before. Billy, that seems like a, a lovely note to draw this to a close on. I'm very much looking forward to doing the On Stage for To Live and Die in LA. As I said, the cruising uh, Blu-ray is out round about now. Um, I look forward to whatever you do in the future. Um, it's funny because I first met you, I think, 98. But, you know, the first time we ever we ever spoke to each other was you, after I'd written a little book about ex The Exorcist. Which was great. Well, thank you. It's but, the most definitive piece ever written about The Exorcist. But you tracked me down to, to tell me that you liked it. And this was the strangest thing. I got a phone call from your office and I didn't, you know, and they said, oh, this is William Friedkin's office. And I was like, yeah, right. 
and they went, Billy wants to speak to you. And I imagined that it was going to be like, you know, what? and, and then you said, oh, I just want to tell you that I really like this book. And you I caught it. Well, you, you really captured. But it meant a lot to me that you did that, Billy, and, and uh, you didn't have to. And uh, Oh, no, it was brilliant. It's still brilliant. Well. And there's some passages in it that are just extravagantly um captivating and 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 beautiful and i don't know how you you got it cuz i've read now god knows hundreds of pieces about the exorcist but nothing <laughs> that ever came as close to capturing what it meant what it was about and what its importance was. It was much more than a critique. It was an appreciation, which is very difficult to do, especially as a critic. As a critic, you're supposed to, I think most people think you're supposed to find the flaw in something and point it out, or maybe there's something exceptional about it and point that out. But to capture the whole and reflect it in what was a very slim yeah, book, yeah. I guess published by the, the British, British Film, Film Institute. Institute yeah. And it's still definitive. It's still in print, isn't it? It is, yeah. Well, you know, thank you very much. I'm going to quit while I'm ahead because that's a very good note to end on. Billy, as always, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Mine. Thank you, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As I said, that was a two-part interview with William Friedkin. If you missed the first part, just go back to last week's podcast. It's still there to download and listen to the whole interview. It was such a privilege to spend time with Billy. As I said, Cruising is coming out on Arrow Blu-ray with a commentary by me and William Friedkin. Thanks so much for downloading. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this. If you have, subscribe and remember to tell your friends. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.